Record inflation is affecting consumers and producers at all levels, and food was no exception over the past few years. But are we about to turn the corner? I'm Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and today we welcome Wells Fargo's Dr. Michael Swanson back to the show, where he'll discuss this and share more agricultural insights on the Food Institute podcast, coming at you right now. All right, so before we get started, I did want to take a moment to remind you about the FI Newscast. Launching every week at 12 noon on Fridays, the FI Newscast takes a look at the biggest news in the food industry and features some of the brightest and best voices from the food industry overall. And as a bonus, it's hosted by our very own Susan Choi. So make sure you take a look on YouTube or LinkedIn, and you can always find the information directly at foodinstitute.com. So, with that out of the way, I did want to welcome Dr. Swanson back to the show. I believe this is your third time hanging out with us, so I guess we could just open up and say welcome and see how you're doing today. So, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, these are the type of environments where an agricultural economist really gets a chance to talk to a lot of people. So, I guess uh, troubling times uh, equals uh, interest in that in the topic. Absolutely. And like I just alluded to, what a year it has been. We've seen record inflation impacting the consumer on all levels. Food was no exception. It may have even been the most impactful part for a lot of consumers. I know you guys just released a uh, food inflation report. So I'm wondering, you know, in your outlook, what are you seeing for food inflation for the rest of 2023? A very marked change. I mean, we're going from the environment where we were seeing continuous price increases being passed along from the food manufacturer to the retailer and then added onto, to seeing things go sideways for the most part, which means that that year-over-year inflation rate's really dropping quickly, especially for the supermarket level. And so it's really been a sea change in, the, in that dynamic there. And I think the consumer hasn't really appreciated it yet, but it's going to make a big difference a year out from here. And I think one of the things you see when you look at a lot of results from companies, you know, they were taking a look at labor uh, and they were saying, you know, it was part of the food inflation picture. I'm wondering from your vantage point, and this could be anywhere from food retailers all the way down to the farm level, you know, how much of an issue was labor when it comes to food inflation? How is that impacting prices on the uh, grocery shelves? Well, let's just put it this way. The lion's share, the biggest chunk of food inflation reflected labor scarcity, you know. People didn't want to work, couldn't work. Um, they weren't where they could work. And so we saw record wage increases, which had to be passed along. So the recent report that we talk, talk about it, I point out, we were never short ingredients. The United States is never short raw material, but we couldn't transform it into the food that people wanted. And that was labor. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic there, the fact that we have all of these materials coming in. I think we'll talk about this a little bit further on in the conversation. Um, but one of the things I saw from retailers, at least in recent weeks, is we're starting to see a pushback on food manufacturers. You know, those very people you were talking about that take those raw ingredients, turn them into food products. Uh, so we're seeing a little bit of a retailer versus manufacturer kind of battle when it comes to these price increases in the current day. And I'm wondering how much of an impact is that having on the market in your viewpoint? It's going to have a ton. You know, the typical dynamic, you go back before COVID, you look at that annual food inflation rate, 1% or less at supermarket, 3% or less at restaurant. That reflected the fact that it was the ingredients were there, but it was just some labor increases offset by productivity. 
And so the retailer always plays a role of gatekeeper between the food manufacturer and the consumer. And so, and that's true of everybody in the link. They're, they're buying things and they're selling things. But that food retailer for the longest period of time, say from 2013 to 2019, certainly could find another alternative supplier that would sell it to them as cheap or cheaper than the other supplier. And so they took advantage of that dynamic, which is their role to, to keep that food inflation low. Now we're kind of shifting back to that whole dynamic again that we saw from 2013 to 2019. Do you think we'll see more of that? Do you think we'll see, you know, tons of these grocers coming out and really putting, you know, pressure on the manufacturers? Do you think private label at this point kind of gives them a little bit more leverage to do that as well? The answer is yes, but there's always a counter to your counter, right? So there's no happily ever after in this business. So what we'll see from the food manufacturers, what we saw before, is they're going to do innovation, new flavors, new packages, new products, because what that allows them to do is to introduce a new product that doesn't have a price point, a previous price point to be compared to, and the consumer benefits because that innovation is flavor, you know, is health issues, it's packaging, all those things that make up better food. So we're kind of going back to, yes, they're going to put their foot down on price increases, but the food manufacturer is going to bring them something new that they're going to want. The consumer is going to want as well. It'll be fun to take a look at in the next couple of months as we see some of these new products coming out. Uh, I would like to shift a little bit here. Um, you know, last time you joined the show, we uh, talked a little bit about the Russia-Ukraine grain deal. Um, it looks like it was just extended for about uh, 60 days, I believe. Um, taking a look at this, you know, when I talked to you last year, you said it would have less of an impact on the U.S. Uh, since then, you know, we've taken a look at what a bunch of different aspects when it comes to, you know, domestic wheat production. But I guess to start off here, taking a look at it, when you see the Russia-Ukraine grain deal, do you think that this is having a noticeable impact on global markets? How do you think it's going to affect, you know, the global wheat trade? Uh, a, if it's around for the foreseeable future, B, if it closes, C, any of the above, how do you see this entire, you know, dynamic playing out and how is it going to affect markets across the globe? Well, you know, it, it's always useful to look at like the futures market because, my favorite joke is it's 10,000 fighting fools, all convinced that they have the right opinion on, on the Chicago Board of Trade. And when you look at wheat prices here, say over the next year, with all that risk, all those things that could happen you just mentioned, it's seven, 750 wheat, which is historically not that high. So between the bears and the bulls, it, evidently the Russian-Ukraine conflict is factored in as a issue, but not a big issue. And, you know, we can talk about lowest wheat acres and how many years, abandonment, all those things. But the market knows about all those things. The bulls and the bears have discussed all those things. And so right now, it's interesting that wheat is as inexpensive as it is. I mean, inexpensive relative. I mean, we had $12 wheat a year ago, and now we're at $750 for, for the same wheat. That's a big difference. That's a big drawdown in risk premium. So it's it's. The Russian-Ukraine conflict has not gone away, and and so, but it's it's really not a big price premium in the market at the moment. When you look at the Chicago Board of Trade, for all those different opinions, it's reflected there. 
And I think you just brought up some interesting points, too, about the domestic crop. Um, you know, I've seen reports from USDA expecting the highest wheat abandonment rates since 1917. I saw a piece, I believe, in Kansas where they're dealing with historic drought for their wheat crop. And it's kind of interesting because if you were paying attention to, you know, the top level news this this winter, you know, January into February, all we heard about was, you know, unbelievable amounts of rain hitting California but it does seem that droughts impacting grain farmers in the Midwest. And I was just wondering, you know, in your travels, I know you do a lot of on-farm kind of exploration there. Uh, anything you're seeing in the domestic crop and maybe any kind of notes about the drought situation in certain parts of the country? Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and it's interesting because wheat is a fairly resilient crop. Um, Timing's important for every crop. There were some good rains, but they came too late in some of the regions to really help people. So, yes, we're going to see uh, a hit there. And it's not going to be a great wheat crop, but we still export, you know, let's just use a, a rough number, 50% of our wheat production for as little acreage as we're applying for as low as a yield as we're getting. We're still looking to the global market to absorb a big chunk of that crop. And so when Argentina, Australia, the EU have a crop, we just don't get a big premium here because we don't need everything that we produce domestically. So, yes, a lot of things against the wheat crop. But like I said earlier, think about what you see on the Chicago Board of Trade, where that's all factored in. And it doesn't seem to be a panic or a, a, a premium there to any degree. And I guess maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the other grain crops in the U.S. Um, you know, how do you think corn, soybeans and other staple grains are going to be impacted this year? Are droughts going to impact them in the same way? Are they seeing the same kind of competition uh, that wheat seeing, you know, down from the southern hemisphere at this point? How are those grain markets today uh, handling the current conditions? Well, they certainly expect a big crop. It's gotten in quickly. Um, we're ahead of the five-year average for planting and also emergence. Those are always positive indicators for yield. Get it in and get it growing. That's always a good thing for a crop. Um, we're transitioning from La Nina conditions to El Nino conditions. Um, everybody wondering what that means, but for the most part, they're expecting normal con growing conditions in the key growing areas, called the I states, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa. And so the USDA's first outlook has come in for big acreage and trend line yields, which always go up. So we're looking at the biggest crop we'd ever produce. And that's just one of those historical things that goes on. Now, for the farmer, the biggest risk is having a really good growing year. It's kind of ironic but we can be five to 10% above the national yield in some years, that's a really good year. But when you think about the national corn yield, let's just take that number 180 bushels, rounding it down a little bit, and you're 10% above it, that'd be like 2004 year, you're close to almost now 200 bushels an acre. That would just be way too much corn. We could also get a drought. We're in, we're in the weather market as we call it. But right now we've seen a, a big drop in corn and soybean prices, over the last three months. The market's kind of holding itself right now as they say, hey, let's make sure this crop gets produced. But for the consumer, it's really good news to produce an above average crop, to get a safety stock built in to corn and soybeans. For the consumer, it means cheaper corn, cheaper soybeans, and that means cheaper meat and cheaper edible oils. So at the moment, the market's looking at a big crop and lower prices. Yeah, and you kind of answered the next question I have here, but, you know, considering corn and soybeans, you know, you alluded to the fact that it's used in feeds, um, tons of different CPG products. Do you think these kind of bumper crops have an impact on, 
you know, price pressures for food, do you think that we'll see, you know, those crops kind of lending themselves towards maybe not so much lower prices, but, you know, staving off a lot of these price increases? Do you think that dynamic is going to help the consumer in that way? If we get the crop that the USDA is pegged into their outlook, uh, or even better, it will really help the consumer. Because when you think about it, poultry, eggs, dairy, cattle, pork, which are a big, big chunk of the total CPI for the consumer, they are almost exclusively feed cost. I mean, we saw Tyson announce their first quarter results and they were very negative for Tyson because they were dealing with the trailing feed costs with today's prices. If they get feed costs down by 25 or 30%, it has a huge impact on profitability at that level. And profitability always drives more supply and cheaper prices for the consumer. So yes, the U.S. consumer would benefit. Now it takes you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months to work its way through the system, kind of in the a converse of what we had with high grain prices. But a consumer should always be rooting for a big crop. This is a little bit of an aside, and you have some more experience than me, Dr. Swanson, but I was very surprised by those Tyson results. Just the fact that they seem to have misses in just about every category of the business, you know, makes a lot of sense with your supply side kind of comment there. But have you ever seen anything like that from the meat producers where they really seem to be facing challenges in all sectors of the business, poultry, you know, pork, beef, everything along the supply chain? Absolutely. And we go back and think about what we saw. 2012 was the peak of the last grain market scare that we had. It was a drought in the I states. We were just growing out the ethanol demand. And what happened was the, the, the poultry, the cattle feeders, and the, and, 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 and the hog operators couldn't pass along the cost fast enough. And they just got compressed, compressed, compressed on higher feed costs and not better revenue. Now, they went, if you get out to 2015 and 2016, when they had a big drop in the grain prices, they actually had negative retail prices for pork and poultry and beef, but they still made better money because the costs were better off. We're almost repeating that wave again. The difference this time is we saw retail meat prices jump faster, sooner on these higher feed costs. So that really worked to the benefit of cattle feeders, hog producers, and, and poultry producers. Now we're kind of seeing a little bit of a, of a hesitation and a bobble in the market. But yes, we've seen this before, but it's been almost a decade. And anything that takes a decade to repeat itself is considered ancient history by most people. <laughs> uh, I would like to shift uh, back to California. We talked about this a little bit early, earlier. It seems like it's you know feast or famine for ranchers and farmers in the area. Um, the one that I'd like to take a look at to start is just the cherry crop. Um, you know, there's not other global markets that really can fill this need. And from what I can tell, California producers seem to be uh, kind of squeezed in at this point because of the rain. Um, typically, you know, they start marketing the California cherry crop around Memorial Day. We're right there. It doesn't seem to be happening yet. So I'm wondering, you know, just taking a look at either this industry specifically, or we can even take a look a little bit further out, just seeing the flooding that was associated with those atmospheric rivers and other storms. What's the report on the ground out of those areas? Are they coming back to life over there? Are they still dealing with some issues uh, connected to that flooding? What's it like in California right now? You know, it's a great, a great crop to think about because it illustrates a lot of other things. It's so the cherry crop you know, on the West Coast really is dependent upon, to your point, what kind of bloom did they get? You know, what kind of chill units did they get? And you start from the south where, where you say, well, hey, this is a far south. I want to go with these cherry trees before it gets too hot and have the right conditions. And then you work your all the way up to um, Washington and Oregon and even into um, uh, B.C. and, you know, those Vancouver areas. 
So the crop kind of chases that weather pattern from south to north. That's true of things like strawberries um, and other fruits and vegetables. So now in California, what we saw is take that growing area just north of Sacramento. They have plenty of water this year, so they're happy about that. They get full allocation. But to your point, they had a, a, a kind of a tough bloom. They didn't really get set soon enough. They didn't get the pollination that they wanted. And so they're a little bit behind. They won't be in the market when they want to. But nobody else was taking the market share from them. So once that chain reaction starts going, the person that's really going to get hit hard is the person that brings their cherry crop online when they were supposed to. But they're kind of matching up with somebody who's late to the game. So now there's two areas producing cherries and there's not enough demand. And that's really the person that really gets kind of um, pushed out of the market. So it's really kind of a, an interesting dominoes effect from south to north for specialty crops. And cherries is a great example. It could be peaches. It could be strawberries. It's about when do you hit your window? And is there another competitor in the, in the market uh, in that window with you that you weren't expecting and didn't want to see? Yeah, I was at a conference recently talking to someone connected to the cherry industry, and that's one of the big notes that they made. Uh, one was the quality coming out of California was not the best, and it might impact other growing regions, but also the fact that cherries specifically don't have too many uh, international markets to import from. And, you know, most consumers, when it comes to fruit, they don't see brands or even, you know, for the most part, locations. So I'm wondering in your mind, with that kind of information available, do you think there's going to be, you know, a threat to this industry because of that specifically? You know, to me, it seems like the climate change thing. I know it's just one year here, but just the fact that we're seeing, you know, these markets overlap. Um, and specifically, I'm talking about California into Oregon, into all the way up to BC, like you said, with them overlapping, it seems like the industry is set up for these very specific time periods. You know, how much of an impact is that going to have on producers in the coming years when they decide, hey, do I want to stay in this business or do I want to move on to another crop? You know, it, it's going to be that it's going to be a big deal. But water is more of a thing to them. I mean, the. the, the Cherry producers are used to um, dealing with the, the variation on the bloom and things like that. It's funny because even if you take a market, go up by Wenatchee and Washington, which is a big cherry market as well, there'll be microclimates higher on the hill, lower on the hill, got hit by the wind, didn't get hit by the wind, things like that. So the water availability is probably the biggest driver. I mean, they're concerned about that seasonality and the temperatures. But if they have water, they're going to grow cherries. They love growing cherries. And, and it's interesting how the market is always looking for another source point, as you talked about. So, yeah, global climate change is a, is a big deal, but it's, it always leads to people considering things they didn't think about before for pricing and plantings. And I think, you know. I'm a lay person, so I don't have the technical know-how, but to me, it seems, like I said earlier, feast or famine when it comes to water in California. We saw, you know, historic mega droughts, and then it seems like they have more water than they know what to do with this year. So I'm wondering, are there any kind of water retention projects underway that you know about that might be able to alleviate these dry years? Because one of the biggest things, at least I've seen in my research, is that ground level water you know, supplies are pretty much tapped out, or at least I should say were tapped out by last year. I'm sure they're being replenished somewhat this year. Tons of issues with the Colorado River, you know, all we're seeing are all of these water issues. So are there any projects that you know about that are trying to take some of this excess water and try to figure out a way to, you know, basically save it for agricultural production and, you know, more lean years like we've seen in the, the last couple? Absolutely. You know, California surprisingly didn't have a lot of water regulation up until a few years ago. <laughs> like I said, 
a highly regulated state that didn't have water regulation. But they passed something called the Sustainable, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. So SIGMA, they call it out there. And one of the things they're working on is doing the water economics or water accounting, how much in, how much out for sustainability purposes. And water banking has become a thing in, in California. And so there's a lot of farmers who have bought um, ground that's not useful for a lot of other things, economic development or housing. And in years like this where they have a surplus, they can put the water into the ground for later withdrawal. And so they're going to do the accounting. It's how much water in, how much water out. So we're seeing a big change in that. And the question is, what are the economics? And what are your real benefits and real um, rights around this water banking? So it's a huge movement in California. Nothing's cheap in California when it comes to buying ground and managing water. But that water is more valuable. I mean, if you know, pick a number out of the air, that in some drought years, you're going to pay $2,000 for an acre foot of water and you need four acre feet of water to grow a crop, you have that value. You say, well, okay, if I can take a year like 2023 where I have a 100% allocation, what's it worth for me to hold it for two to three to four years and then take it back out when I really need it? Seeing a lot of that in California, it's always evolving. It's always a question about the um, economics and the regulatory environment, but it's a big deal. In California, um, producers are very sophisticated and they're asking a lot of good questions. And I'm sure they're all very thankful because it seems for the most part, you know, most reports are indicating uh, 100% are close to allocations this year on the waterfront. So, like I said, good news for farmers out there. Um, one thing you did note was that, you know, California does seem to have a ton of regulations. And one new rule that was recently upheld by the Supreme Court was their rule on the humane treatment of pigs sold in the California market, even when they're produced by out-of-state companies. I know a lot of people thought this was, you know, a attack on interstate trade and that this is something that California was not going to be able to uphold. But the fact the Supreme Court upheld it was pretty interesting to me. You know, I'm wondering from your vantage point, how do you see this impacting the hog market or even other, you know, commodities that might end up getting a similar treatment in the years to come? Do you think that California is going to be able to kind of set the stage for this? Do you think other states will kind of adopt similar provisions? How do you see this playing out in the years to come? Well, first, I would like to go back to what you talked about with the Supreme Court ruling uh, there's there's an old joke about calling calling a book a classic, which means that everybody's heard of it, but nobody really wants to read it. Um, <laughs> so, so a lot of times we could say Supreme Court rulings are classics in that sense that you know everybody hears about it, but did they read the details, the dissent, you know what what the scope was? And so there's a lot. Interstate commerce is a very, as you mentioned, a very important topic, and one specific case doesn't necessarily set the entire scope of that law. So it's interesting there. So I'll just make that point that Supreme Court cases are often classics. Everybody knows about them, but never nobody wants to read them. So when you think about that, the, the California um, ruling was already anticipated to a large degree. Most hog producers in the Midwest were said, hey, no, you could lose this ruling, so you want to be in that market. So California has the ability to set a market, you know, whether it's eggs or hogs, but it's, it's, there's always a limit because if, if they push it too expensive, then at some point, you know, out-of-state out of producer would say simply, you keep the market to yourself or we, we can't make money with that. And so there, there is a give and take in these things. So even though they won this case, there's an economic limit to what producers are willing to do and what consumers are willing to pay for. And so it's interesting. California is always, you know, evaluating that. 
And it, it takes a, takes time to see what which of those two is going to win, the cost or, or the demand. And usually there's some adjustment that we weren't expecting at the end of the day, you know, technology or other things that helps alleviate a, a part of that problem that we anticipated. So California is a very, very interesting market. You know, it's, it's a huge influential market, but there's limits to what any one market can do because it has to face the reality uh, of the technology that we have today and other factors that are driving the global markets. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, uh, most listeners probably recognize the economic power and like the market size of California and how they're able to, you know, quote unquote, get away with stuff like this. But I am wondering, you know, do you think you'll see similar humane treatment kind of laws popping up across the nation in the years to come? Or do you think this is something that'll be more relegated to California alone? You know, I think this would be more regulated regulated to California. Take take a small state, you know, pick some state, you know, put call it X and have them put some, you know, very difficult um, to comply with regulation in place. <laughs> well, if, if you're two million or less consumers uh, as, a, as, as a big producer or packer, I might just look at you and say, well, I'm going to just not sell to you. You know, good luck with that. You know, it, it'd be kind of hard to say that to states like California, Texas, Florida, um, New York. But if you're a small enough state and you put ornery enough um, regulation in place, yeah, you might lose access to, to out-state producers. Excellent. And as we're coming to the end of this conversation, Dr. Swanson, just wanted to see if there's anything on your radar that you think maybe our listeners will want to know about when you take a look at the current agricultural scene. Anything that you see coming down the pipeline that might be interesting for the rest of 2023? I think another thing we should go back and talk about food inflation is the dynamic between away-from-home food inflation and at-home. You know, when we started the podcast, we were talking about how at-home food inflation is dropping. We were peaked at 14% in June and July of last year. The April number came in at a little bit over 6%. That's a remarkable slowdown. But we've seen an acceleration in the away-from-home food inflation, you know, over 8.5%. And so as that gap gets bigger, it's going to be more noticeable to the consumer. And what's been remarkable to the entire industry is how resilient the consumer has been about paying for away-from-home food. Now, I'm going to attribute that to the fact that we have 4 million more people working today than we did a year ago. From April 2022 to April 2023, 4 million new jobs. That's a big number. And a job is the most important economic asset for most people. But it's going to be interesting to see how the industry deals with a big, big gap between away from home inflation and at home inflation. So the industry is going to be keeping a a close eye on that dynamic because it's a big part of the spend. And it's going to make a big impact on where the money flows in these channels. Well, to me, it sounds like a future podcast episode, Dr. Swanson. Maybe we'll get you back on to talk about that dynamic. Uh, but in the meantime, I do want to thank you for spending some time with us today with the Food Institute podcast. I'm wondering if anyone wants to learn a little bit more about the work you do, where can they go? Well, it's right on wellsfargo.com, uh, part of our economic research, and we love to share it with people. We'll definitely share a link in the description of this episode. But yeah, once again, Dr. Swanson, thanks for spending some time with us today. Always a pleasure. Look forward to future conversations. And that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode. Once again, thanks to Wells Fargo and Dr. Swanson for spending some time with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please visit foodinstitute.com. Until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off.